I'm a big fan of the writer Franz Kafka. Kafka was born in 1883 in Prague to a middle-class Jewish family. German was his mother tongue, not Czech, as many people think. In 1883, Prague was part of the Austrian Empire, in which German was the official language. Because I am such a die-hard Kafka fan, I once traveled to Prague in order to retrace Kafka's steps. I wanted to see the house he was born in, the synagogue he attended in the Jewish quarter, the insurance office where he worked, the apartment of his best friend, Max Brod, the fancy goods store on the Old Town Square, which his father owned, the legendary Golden Lane where he wrote his famous short story, A Country Doctor. So I walked around Prague with a map of all these landmarks, but I found the enterprise to be a bit disappointing. His birth home had been turned into a touristy and kitschy cafe, quite literally called the Franz Kafka Cafe. The apartment in which he wrote The Metamorphosis had been bulldozed to the ground decades ago, and now a Hotel Continental stood in its place. The Jewish quarter had hardly a pious Jew in sight, but just long lines of tourists dressed in shorts and sandals. I realized that I would never get to the real Kafka. I've read multi-volume biographies on Kafka, seen countless black and white photographs of him and his family, read his diaries and letters, watched films from his era. Still, after all this effort, I can really only say I've gotten to know about one one-thousandth or even just one one-millionth of the real Kafka and his real Jer Jewish-German milieu. I wasn't there when he woke up in the morning. I did not know how he greeted his parents in the kitchen. I didn't see which book he kept on his nightstand. And I certainly was not privy to the thousands of random thoughts which ricochet through his mind every day. We are left with the mere crumbs of his existence and lifespan. When looking over the precipice of this dispiriting black hole of knowledge, our next move might be to take comfort in what we can know. Maybe we can't get to know Kafka, but at least we can get to know ourselves, so we think. We spend every sleeping and waking hour with ourselves, with our thoughts, feelings, opinions, desires. Absolute union and absolute knowledge, then, is possible, so long as we seek it from ourselves, whom we quite literally meet with every day. In fact, however, we are all very much in the dark as to who we really are. There is a sense in which I can't even know myself any better than I know Kafka. This is ironic and counterintuitive, as, in terms of pure data, I have far more information about myself than about Kafka. Yet, simply having more information about yourself doesn't mean you really know yourself. Just spending time with yourself also doesn't mean that you know yourself. If you don't believe me, consider the following situations. Have you ever seen yourself on film and been a bit shocked that that person is you? Yet, if you ask your friend, do I really look like that? Do I really talk and walk like that? She will answer, uh, yeah, of course you do. In this instance, your friend is more familiar with you than you are with you. Or consider the moments when you look at your resume. You read all of these facts and information about yourself on paper, and you see your name at the top. But you feel like this resume of you 
is not the real you at all. Moreover, not only is the resume not you, but it is deceptive and misleading as to who you really are. You feel frustrated with this false image the resume creates of yourself. But this false image does not come about because the information on the resume is false. Rather, in a troubling irony, it is true facts and data about you, which disguises and corrupts the real you. Moreover, one can have enough data about oneself to fill an entire hard drive. That still doesn't mean one can know oneself because my perspective of myself could be terribly distorted. When I look at Kafka, for example, I see him through objective eyes. My own ego and biases don't get so much involved. Yet, when I look at myself, there is, we might say, much more at stake. I might, for example, want to lie to myself about who I really am. Yet with Kafka, I have no interest in lying about who he was. I have no interest in assuaging his ego. Indeed, how often have we encountered people who are totally deluded as to who they really are? Narcissists, for example, have the personality disorder that they think they are gods. Yet, to everyone else, it is obvious that they're not gods at all. We detect after a while that they are closer to insecure and self-hating children than to gods, and they are being laughed at rather than revered. Clinical narcissists are incapable of self-reflection and self-criticism. This is what, by definition, makes them narcissists. So even if the narcissist has spent every waking hour with himself for a lifetime, he is utterly deceived as to who he really is. Ironically, a narcissist is the least qualified of all people to analyze and know himself. This despite the fact that he has inhabited his own body and world for a lifetime. We might say that I can better know Kafka than a narcissist can know himself. Or sometimes we encounter people who have depression and think of themselves as worthless. These people are often incredible artists, highly compassionate and charitable, courageous and accomplished. Everybody else sees these qualities in them, but the depressed person can't observe them in themselves. We might say that a therapist can better understand a depressed person than he can understand himself. Or again, we might say that I can better know Kafka than a depressed person can know himself. At least with Kafka, I am orbiting around who he might have really been. But a depressed person is often living in another galaxy from his true self. In short, the more information or experience we have with someone, including ourselves, does not by any means guarantee that we will know them better. In fact, it could lead to the opposite, that, in a perverse way, the more information we have, the less we know someone or something. The question of whether we can know ourselves is as old as philosophy itself. The ancient Greek philosophers, Socrates and Plato, believed that the self was in the form of the soul which would exist throughout eternity. The 17th century philosopher René Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. According to Descartes, if I can think my own existence, then I must exist, whatever that means. The 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume believed that the self does not exist. Rather, what we think of as the self is just an accumulation of our experiences. Finally, Immanuel Kant argued that the self does exist, but that we can never know the self due to the limitations of human thought. 
A typical and incorrect opinion about Hinduism is that it advocates removing the self, that we should not have a self at all and just exist. Yet, this is not what Hinduism teaches. Rather, it is that when we let go of all the titles, accomplishments, fears, memories that we have, the true self, ironically, will emerge. In Hinduism, the self is that which exists underneath all the layers of the ego. In many people, in many cases, people confuse their ego with the self, believing that our ego is who we are. This is an idea which Hermann Hesse would capture in his 1922 novel, Siddhartha. The novel takes place in India in the 6th century BCE. Siddhartha is born into the tradition of Hinduism. As a child, Siddhartha is a kind of wunderkind. He is the joy of his parents. He is handsome and athletic. He is loved by his friends. Yet Siddhartha himself is not happy. The text reads, quote, Siddhartha began to feel that the love of his father, the love of his mother, and the love of his best friend, Govinda, would not satisfy him and make him happy for all time. Siddhartha will then undertake a lifelong quest to find peace, to find himself. This path is rather windy indeed. Siddhartha experiments with various religious groups. He becomes a businessman, he becomes a beggar, and he even becomes a kind of decadent hedonist for a time. None of this satisfies him. It is only at the end of his life that he finds peace and simultaneously finds himself and enlightenment. In the novel, Hesse describes this moment of enlightenment as an emptying out of the ego. In, in place of the ego, one becomes a listener and an observer. Hesse writes, quote, Siddhartha listened. He was now nothing but a listener, completely concentrated on listening, completely empty. He felt that he had now finished learning to listen. Yet, even though Siddhartha's ego has been dissolved, the self remains. In fact, now the self is at its most vibrant. With the emptying out of the ego, the self can now merge with the oneness of the universe and of humanity. Hesse writes that now Siddhartha could, quote, submerge his self into the river, this song of a thousand voices. This submerging of the self permitted Siddhartha to, quote, perceive the whole, the oneness, the om, the perfection. Hesse writes that at this moment, Siddhartha stopped fighting his fate and therefore stopped suffering. His face showed the cheerfulness of a knowledge which knows perfection, which is devoted to the flow, which is belonging to the oneness. I realize these passages are a bit overly romanticized and flowery. Yet, there are two points I wish you to take away from these passages. The first point is that, paradoxically, one knows oneself best, not by gathering more information or more experiences, but by listening, becoming empty, accepting, letting go. The second point is that, when you and yourself can merge, that allows for a simultaneous union with humanity and with the universe, or God. As demonstrated in Siddhartha, the moment you stand face to face with yourself, it is as though you are standing face to face with being, standing face to face with God. You are listening to The Shrift, episode 32. 
בהערצחה. In the Parsha for this week, we get some rather important information about Moshe. We know that Moshe led the Hebrews out of Egypt and that he's an all-around great guy. But this week, the Torah really wants to seem to convey to us how truly special Moshe is, how he stands above all the other prophets. This week, the Torah gives us two explicit reasons why Moshe is so special. The first is that he is humble. Okay, so he is humble. So what? A lot of people are humble. But no, Moshe isn't just humble. The Torah tells us that he is the most humble person on the face of the earth. Notice that the Torah doesn't say Moshe was very humble or one of the humblest people alive. No, he is the most humble man on earth. This is a statement from the Torah we should take very seriously. What does it mean exactly to be the most humble person on the face of the earth? We use the word humble to describe people all the time. Usually it implies that someone doesn't brag about him or herself, that he or she is down to earth, that he or she recognizes that accomplishments don't mean much in the grand scheme of life. But when you look deeper, what humble really means is lack of an ego. Whenever someone has a huge ego, we would never call that person humble, right? So Moshe is the most humble person on the face of the earth. As I see it, this means nothing less than Moshe has no ego, zero ego. By the way, here would be a good time to pause and notice how ahead of its time the Torah was in showing what an ideal ruler should look like. For most of human history, it was the people with the biggest egos, almost always men, who became rulers. We see this particularly in the case of the Pharaoh and Balak, the king of Moab. We see how, in Moshe's day, the rulers were huge egotists. Not so with Moshe. Even today, most of the rulers we elect have huge egos. But at least we kind of have learned to recognize as a society that it might be good to have someone humble steering the ship. This is what made Moshe so special. He had obliterated his ego. But the Torah gives us a second reason as well why Moshe stands far above all the rest. Exactly three verses after the Torah tells us that Moshe was the humblest man on earth, God tells us this. Moshe is not like other prophets. With other prophets, God says, I make myself known to them in a vision or in a dream. But with Moshe, it is different, God says. I speak with Moshe mouth to mouth. I speak to him directly and not in riddles. Now, I ask you, could the Torah be any more clear here what it takes to communicate with God? It takes humility, or put another way, it requires that you lose your ego. The Torah is more or less laying out an equation for us. More ego equals less God. Less ego equals more God. And we can take this a step further. The greater your ego, the less you can connect with others. And moreover, the greater your ego, paradoxically, the less you can connect with yourself. 
the person with narcissistic personality disorder bears this out. What makes this a disorder is essentially that the ego has become so overblown that a certain psychosis manifests itself. As discussed above, because of his overblown ego, the, the narcissist is utterly deluded as to who he really is. Narcissists, moreover, are incapable of forming real relationships with other people because of this overblown ego. They are only capable of manipulating others to their own ends, but never connecting with them. And as far as connecting with God is concerned, you can forget about it with the narcissist. This is not a coincidence. He who has a deluded ego will not be able to connect with his true self. Subsequently, he will struggle to connect with others and with the oneness of the universe. Put another way, narcissists and Moshe are utterly opposed to each other. Moshe is the ultimate anti-narcissist, and the narcissist is the ultimate anti-Moshe. Moshe achieved the pinnacle state of humility. He had no ego. His ego was dissolved. If you can achieve this level of humility, then you will be in a permanent state of oneness with yourself, with others, and with God, much like Siddhartha could be. And again, when I say humility, I don't mean that you're someone who doesn't brag a lot or who's always turning the other cheek and pitying others. Rather, humility should be thought of as the absence of the ego. What distinguished Moshe from other prophets is that he was somehow able to maintain this level of humility. God says that with Moshe, he can speak face to face, mouth to mouth, but with others he must speak indirectly, through a dream or through riddles. For most of us, we only get brief glimpses into the divine oneness. We have brief momentary periods of understanding. We have moments of transcendence which last for just an instant. These are those instants in which our ego has been quelled. But with most people, the ego is always popping up again, always returning. Moshe, by contrast, was experiencing this transcendence all the time. This doesn't mean that he was chatting with God all the time. Rather, if we see it more symbolically, it just means that Moshe was like Siddhartha at the conclusion of Hesse's novel. He was living in a state of continual nirvana and enlightenment. The Torah is great at showing and not telling. Even though the Torah tells us that Moshe was the most humble man on the planet, it also gives us concrete evidence. A few passages earlier in the Parsha, two men named Eldad and Midad are discovered speaking in ecstasy inside the Hebrew camp. They are ex briefly experiencing the divine, we might say. What happens? Joshua sees them speaking in tongues or speaking in ecstasy. Joshua, the great Joshua, then rushes over to Moshe and says, Moshe, this is your turf. You are the guy who speaks to God, not Eldad and Medad. Are you going to let them get away with that, with trying to usurp your role? Moshe's response to Joshua demonstrates his supreme humility. He says, Joshua, this is great news if they're connecting with God's spirit. I wish everyone could connect with God in this way. Joshua, Joshua was thinking of Moshe purely in terms of Moshe's ego and Moshe's status. Yet Moshe immediately threw the question back at Joshua. Moshe said, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about connection. But if you think about it, Moshe could not have responded any other way by definition. Interestingly, if Moshe cared about his status as the greatest prophet ever, then he would immediately cease to be that prophet. Once one begins to care about the ego, the oneness that one experiences toward others 
toward oneself and toward God instantaneously evaporates. But the question becomes, if I lose my ego, then how do I retain the self? If I stop thinking about myself, then wouldn't I become lost, become nothingness? Quite the contrary. Paradoxically, it is when you become nothing that you become most yourself. Again, to understand this, we have to go beyond our typical conception of nothingness as something bad. Nothingness is not a black hole or an abyss. Rather, in Judaism, nothingness is the closest one can come to connecting with the eternal. The Hebrew word for I is ani, yet if you rearrange the Hebrew letters of this word, you get the word en. This is a very important connection. What does the word en mean? Well, there's no translation exactly for it in English. The best translation would be, there is not. It can't even be translated into absence because the word absence implies that there was something once there which has since disappeared. N does not presume that something pre-existed. So in Hebrew, the word for I and there is not are intimately connected. Why should this be? Kabbalah gives us the following teaching. When all the layers are removed from you, you become who you really are. In Kabbalah, the self is not your personality, your body, or even your soul. Because if you think about it, if you remove your personality, you are still you. If you remove your body, there's also still a part of you which is still you. And even if you remove your soul, something of you still remains. The real you, the real self, is the nothingness within you, according to Kabbalah. How then do we get better at dissolving our egos? Well, first of all, I'd recommend that you listen to the shrift every week. That goes without saying. And second, the daily practice of meditation and yoga are crucial. And there are countless of other strategies which we cannot go into in this week's episode. But there's one strategy I'd like to point out which we have a tendency to overlook. Ironically, this strategy is quite literally right under our noses. This is prayer. Prayer. We tend to have a corrupt view of prayer these days as making a bargain with God or as just asking God to give us something. Give me this, God, and I'll be good. As I've discussed in previous episodes, God is not a man in the sky, nor is he Santa Claus. It is not so much what you say in a prayer that is important as is the act of prayer itself. As soon as you pray, your mind undergoes a kind of titanic shift. You are suddenly connected with something outside of yourself. You are acknowledging that your fate is determined by powerful forces outside of your control. Put another way, you are humbling yourself. When you truly pray, your ego dies a momentary death, even if you're praying for good things to happen to you. Ideally, you are praying to God. But let's say you don't believe in God, which would be, of course, highly understandable. Even if you just pray to the universe or to fate, the effect is almost the same. If you ask God for help, or if you ask the universe to help, your brain waves are still undergoing this important shift. There are, however, multiple advantages to praying to God rather than just the universe. One advantage is that in Judaism, God is a much more cultivated and nuanced and sophisticated force than the mere universe or fate. Praying to God rather than the universe allows you to feel a greater sense of connectedness and transcendence. But as I said before, even if you don't believe in God and just pray to the universe, 
the experience will be similar. Yet, like so many of these mystical concepts, when we try to explain them through language, something gets lost. Language, with all of its flaws, is not always up to the task to convey these ideas. The experience of prayer, of self-knowledge, of oneness, cannot be captured so readily through words. In last week's episode, I discussed Nietzsche's idea that real love is always above pity. Nowhere can this be better understood than in Gustav Klimt's famous painting, The Kiss, Der Kuss. It is quite apparent that in this painting from 1908, nobody is pitying anyone else. And yet, this painting represents the supreme moment of love. One need only see this painting to understand that this is love in its purest form. The painting is entitled The Kiss, but the actual kiss occurring in the painting is hardly the painting's focus. Rather, what Klimt so masterfully shows us in this painting is two people merging with one another, dissolving into one another. Just as there is no pity going on in this painting, there is also no ego. Klimt did not create this painting just to showcase a romantic moment shared by two lovers. Rather, Gustav Klimt seems to want to show how the experience of love is transcendent. When one so fully connects with another person, a simultaneous connection is going on with oneself and with the universe. All egos dissolve into a oneness. This is why art critics have described Klimt's painting as a moment of universal experience in which the two lovers are connected with nature, the cosmos, and the universal spirit all at once. Yet, we don't need to go to Vienna and view Klimt's painting in order to grasp this idea. The Torah already gave us the same image thousands of years ago. Because when God spoke to Moses, the Torah tells us not that they spoke to each other face to face, but rather mouth to mouth. When Gustav Klimt painted the kiss, he was depicting the moment when God and Moses spoke to each other mouth to mouth millennia ago on Har Sinai. This is perhaps what is meant by the cryptic expression, God is love.